Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, I'm excited to share an interview that I had with David Moreno based out of Berkeley, California. David has been teaching yoga for over three decades and has so much to share about the evolution of yoga and how the climate has changed over all of these years. I think this is a really fun conversation and I'm excited to bring it to the table. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hello. Good morning, David. I'm so excited to be talking to you today on the Connected Community Podcast. Hi. So um, I was looking that you've been teaching for 30 years. Is that correct? Thousands of years. Thousands of 30,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) Pre, yeah, prehistorically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Um, I would love to talk to you about the evolution of yoga and how it's changed over the years. I've been teaching for 20 years. You've been teaching for 30, and we've definitely seen a lot of changes in the industry. Still. Um, But let's start with, like, how did your yoga journey begin, and what initially drew you to the yoga practice? Mm. Um, I had danced professionally. I was dancing professionally in Southern California and Los Angeles and traveling with different shows and stuff. And um, I got to a certain point where I realized that, um, you know, most dancers end up teaching yoga, uh, teaching dance. Like that's like, if you're not in a show or you're not traveling with a troupe that you're basically teaching. And I felt like I don't really want to spend the rest of my life teaching, (laughs) teaching (laughs) dance, which is so ironic because I spent the rest of my life teaching yoga instead, but there's, there's a reason for that. And, And in fact, one of my dancer colleagues, um, started offering some yoga in her studio. And so I started taking that. That was kind of my first introduction. So I went from dance into yoga that way. And at that time, which was like late 70s, you were just a kid, baby. Um, <laughs> there were like, oh, like in the city of Los Angeles, there were maybe like three yoga studios that you would have to drive an hour to and they were only on certain days and you know all that stuff so it was a very different thing so I dabbled I dabbled because it wasn't really available and then I uh, moved to New Mexico and I dabbled there there was at least an Iyengar teacher that I got connected with and then eventually an Ashtanga teacher um but it was always at first it was in between things because back then even in the early 80s um Yoga was like mostly geared for housewives, you know, people that could take a class during the day. Uh, and so it wasn't until like a younger and Ashtanga really took hold in the community that where there was something that was actually challenging because I'd come from a dance background, right? So it was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that was sweet, but, you know, are we going to move? <laughs> and, and that was kind of my experience doing a younger yoga at first because you know, you spent most of your time moving props around the room, like fold mm-hmm. your blanket, now go get a chair, now go get a stress. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was in a ballet class and we were at the bar, but we were never actually dancing across the room, you know? So I always felt like I was warming up, but there was never 
a payoff in, in any particular way. And then Ashtanga hit and it was like, oh my gosh, this is challenging. It's a flow. It's There's a movement to it. You know, it was really... Uh, really caught my attention and, and scared the hell out of me also because it was just like terrifying, you know, <laughs> and to get up at 5.30 in the morning and go do mm-hmm. your hour plus, uh, you know, uh, practice every day it was totally crazy. So I kind of started that way. And um, and then I studied with T.S. Little in Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico for five years straight before he decided uh, he and his partner then were going to India to study with Patavi Joyce uh, for like people used to go to India for like a month at a time because if mm-hmm. you were over there there wasn't the internet and you just you know you had to go and you just if you wrote anybody they didn't get them till three months after you know you'd return uh, so he went oh and he and he said here are the keys you know you can teach the Tuesday and Saturday class and it was like I was ready to, I mean, because I, because I had taught some dance and it was like, oh yeah, you know, I feel like I can, I felt confident that I could at least carry some of that off. And so that's how I started teaching. What was his style, T.S. Little, hmm. when, back then? Oh, this is so fascinating because I feel like I was at the moment when, you know, people, if you do Ashtanga, you have to do authentic full series you don't you don't do any variations Mm -hmm. if you do variations it's no longer ashtanga according to that tradition you know Mm -hmm. and And just wait just to stop you really quick david because some people don't even know what ashtanga is sorry yeah so um so explain that a little bit i I was training ashtanga too okay so ashtanga yoga basically has is uh has like six six different series that are all life threatening <laughs> and you learn one series at a time and these may take you lifetimes and some people never get past first series and some people never get past second series and some you know and a few of them like the senior teachers that I was studying with had mostly were doing like fourth and fifth some of sixth you know so like they, they just got more complicated and more challenging and more and, and yet there was always a it, it was a formula. Like you always did the mm-hmm. same poses in that series. There was no variations. And when I studied with Patavi Joyce, who was the originator of this system, mostly I studied with him in the United States. Like I didn't go to India. I waited till he came here, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he would only let you go as far as you could go through a series. And when you couldn't do that pose, he, he would dismiss you and you would go and do the finishing poses, which were your inversions and your cooling down poses, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> inversions, headstand, shoulder stand, you know, and, and you would do that. Even if you could do the other 10 yep. uh, mm-hmm. poses on the other side of that one, he would have you stop. And I, it's so brilliant because it's so like what we don't do today, right? You know, you only go as far as you can go. And and you work on that until you can until you can do, you know, the mm-hmm. whole thing. And like I said, not every people are happy just doing one series because it's so challenging. It's so beautiful. It's so challenging, but it's also it's so rhythmic and it has this whole uh, process that you go. It's like a journey with yourself that you go through every day. Mm-hmm. So when Tia's came to town, he had studied some younger. He learned with his mother. Like several senior teachers that I know learned yoga in the kitchen with their mother. You know, like that's how they learn. I know John Friend did, T.S. did. Um, uh, so I was there when he came into town and he started teaching primary series. And, you know, we'd get up early in the morning, go to this little tiny studio and... Uh, 
and because it was so challenging, he, he was like concerned that like a lot of people weren't coming to it. You know, I mean, Santa Fe is like a retirement town in a way. It always has been an artistic town. People don't get up early, you know, back then. And um, so he was really concerned that mm, I don't know if I can make this here because it's not working. And and I wanted him to stay because he was a brilliant teacher, clearly a brilliant teacher and a, a wonderful practitioner. And um, so I actually saw him have to like, okay, try to teach Ashtanga to the general public. That doesn't work because most people can't do Lotus. Most people can't do this. Most people can't do that, especially people coming in who are in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, it's like, no, I don't know if we're going to do that. You know, so what he did was he started breaking it down. And that's how vinyasa yoga or flow yoga started. It was mm. like, okay, it's no longer ashtanga because we can't call it ashtanga because we're not doing the prescribed series. Right. So I actually saw him like be really creative and start like, okay, well, let's do this. And then he also had some Iyengar background, which he studied much deeper later on as most people that do Ashtanga first do later on. And uh, for those of you that don't know what Iyengar is, you know, it's, it's more, uh, again, it's more prop oriented and it's, it's not a flow sequence. You're not doing pranayama with it or breathing practices with the asana practice or the poses. It's very um, static. It's very it's static very and Ashtanga is very flow movement. Right. I also like Ashtanga was jazz and, and mm-hmm. Iyengar was ballet at the bar mm-hmm. <laughs> no, without going across the room. So that's how they distinguish themselves. And they're both like, you know, they're both, they both studied with the same teacher. And, mm-hmm. and, as, and as was taught back then, for whom and for when, Iyengar was taught one thing because that suited his needs. He had some, he had some uh, physical challenges. And Patavi Joyce was taught the other because he had more of this athletic approach to it. And, and so they were taught, you know, what suited them best, which mm-hmm. we can circle way back around to that later on, because that's mm-hmm. exactly what we don't do any longer. It's one size fits all. So, uh, and so when I started teaching, I was teaching vinyasa. You know, we use the sun salutation as, as like part of the entry in, and then you could focus off on different aspects of practice. And that's when that's when vinyasa started. There wasn't a mm-hmm. vinyasa style yoga outside of Ashtanga prior to that. John Friend had reinterpreted the Iyengar stuff where he felt like there was no heart in it because it was so mm-hmm. rudimentary, right? And you did it this way and you folded your blankets this way. So he brought heart back into that and reframed it as Anasara yoga, you know, so it had this progression and it still keeps going and it still keeps evolving. Mm-hmm. And so who are the teachers that influenced you the most? Wow. Well, you know, I mean, T.S., I mean, I had I had never been able to study with, and plus I wasn't drawn to a teacher or practice prior to connecting with him. And uh, so I studied with him for probably like eight years. And uh, certainly five years before I started teaching, which is another thing, like most people do teacher trainings now, and then they start teaching if they get a slot somewhere. I I studied five years before I started teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, so I studied with T.S. He was my base. And then I would go off and do workshops with John Friend. John Friend was just starting to call what he was doing Anasara. 
you know, Krishna Das was there on his harmonium just checking ah, out the song, no checking, checking out this kirtan that he was going to sing to everybody pre his first CD. And uh, like, you know, we'd be sitting there after these hour long practices and you come in with this harmonium and play, we just all like melt. And cry oh my and it was just so touching, you know, so it was like right at these really pivotal times, you know, where people, where things are just starting to happen. This is like mid to late nineties. And, um, and then there was a woman named Annie Pace who was uh, a senior uh, Ashtanga teacher in Colorado that I studied with a lot. She was totally amazing, like totally committed to the practice, 100%, you know, everything down the line. And Richard Friedman also, I would drive up from uh, Santa Fe to Boulder, the other Santa Fe, and mm-hmm. and uh, study with Richard. and. So those were the real consistent people that I worked with. There have been so many others that I've taken classes from and little workshops from and this and that, but those are the the main people. And then when I got to Berkeley, I ended up coming to Berkeley to study with a tantric Ayurvedic teacher who showed me a whole different system. And uh, I had been teaching already for about 10 years when that happened. And had very mystical connections with him prior to meeting him, and that's what brought me out to uh, Berkeley, and that's how you and I got to meet. So, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the the scope of it. I mean, I think it's interesting, actually, that men were so few and far between in yoga classes, but yet a lot of these pivotal teachers that came and um, brought yoga to the West were men. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the Absolutely. people that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, because the Ashtanga, because they were challenging practices at that time, more men were doing them, you know, I mean, you know, they were male teacher. And, you know, at one point I ended up teaching this workshop for some conferences and stuff called men in yoga, because so many men coming into yoga by the two thousands, you know, that period on, like there were so many female teachers teaching that they had no idea that this used to be taught father to son, grandfather to grandson. It was passed down within the male patriarchy forever, you know, Mm. and they had no idea because they were just around a room full of women being the minority and having a female teacher, you know, so that flipped around like really quickly. And whereas women uh, cultivated a community because because there it was so male dominated that women started doing things like moon circles and uh, postnatal prenatal you know started focusing on stuff that the men weren't focusing on you know and and so they bonded and started their own community and then I think that's how it grew to be such a female dominated uh, practice or what institution, I guess, at this point, um, from that, whereas men didn't, men didn't bond. That's why I did this workshop for years, because it was like, let's just sit in a circle and let's just honor our forefathers who passed this down. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know about them. We don't even, you know, nobody knows whose teacher's teacher is any longer. You know, they'll tell you the training they went through, but there's not a teacher that they've studied with predominantly Mm-hmm. that can really understand their psyche and understand their physicality. I think it's interesting that you say that because I, when I started practicing yoga, I practiced, started practicing in 99 and started teaching in 2003. 
And what drew me to the practice was that sense of community and commitment mm. and loyalty. And what I found mm. was that um, me and everyone that I knew in my in the yoga community, we would float around from class to class to class mm. till we found the person that we'd resonate with. And then we would stick with that teacher for years and be committed to them and to that practice and to the schedule and like really embracing them and everything that they had to offer until it felt like it was time to move on. Maybe that was two, three, four years. Um, and that's what I feel like has been one of the biggest shifts in the yoga community is that it is this like a la carte where you just pop into this class and then you know, this one has a special and, and you just go to this class and this class and this class, and there's no consistency with the community. Cause I would go to those classes and not only would the teacher be the same, but the student body would be the same and we would be welcoming to new people. Um, but there was this like sense of going into this class and having this experience with these people. And, um, and I feel like that's, what's been lost in, in classes now is that there's not a sense of community, um, within the classes, there's a lot of just switching around from teacher to teacher. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Well, it, it did become more of like what's convenient for my schedule. Right. And because there's a yoga studio on every block or there was pre pandemic, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, we can just go to what fits into our schedule, which that was never the case when we were starting, you know, it was like, this is the, when the classes you showed up, TS used to lock the door. If you didn't show up on time, you know, you mm -hmm. didn't take class. I was, and we would never do that. Now it's like, Oh, I don't want to offend anybody mm -hmm. and come in whenever it's convenient for you. And you know, but we would that. never come in late like that. Exactly. I, if we were exactly. going to be late, we would drive home. Cause that would be incredibly rude. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And you, you weren't on your phone, like, you know, prior to the class starting and all that stuff, or your watch or whatever mm -hmm. device is currently attached to people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I also remember, you know, classes were 90 minutes. And so that was definitely right. an experience. For years and years and years, it was 90 minutes. And that was what it was. And then it moved to 75. And then it moved to, you know, 55. And now classes Lunch. are... Lunchtime yoga. Yes. And there's no 90-minute classes that I know of that exist maybe outside of the Ashtanga world. You're, you have 90-minute classes? My Saturday, my Saturday class is still 90 minutes, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. And the same people still come to it that have been coming forever, you know, plus new folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you a big difference the... between a 90-minute and a 55-minute. And uh, you believe me, I've been there through the process of students going like, oh, would you mind, could you cut your class down to like, or do you want to teach this class that's like 55 minutes long? I remember when uh, Ashtanga, the, the primary series, if you're going through any of those series, even at a good clip, an hour, 15 minutes, mm -hmm. an hour and a half, if you're really like just doing the do. Mm -hmm. And people were teaching it at for an hour. And at like nine o'clock at night in the city because people could go to a night class. And this is like totally counterintuitive about how your energy moves around when it's supposed to be relaxing in the Cappadocia at nighttime, right. you know, resting <laughs> and you're bringing up all this pizza and heat and fire. And, and then you're going to be awake for like the rest of the night. You know, it's just like no sense. So I've seen that also happen when they're going, Oh yeah. Can you cut your classes down to like, no, I said no a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, at a certain point, because well, I didn't, I didn't understand. <laughs> but I think that's something to be said about our attention spans. Um, where mm. 
I'd say most people have trouble just kind of focusing on anything for more than 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And there's, I, I would say a lot of people would really struggle with going to an hour and a half class and actually like cutting their phone off, cutting themselves off from society, going inward, taking that time for themselves. I think that people find that um, hard now when we're in such a fast paced society. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that people like also is this uh, routine. It's like Bikram's yoga forever. It's like you, it's always the same. It's never different. It doesn't matter what season it is, what your age is, anything. It's, this is the, this is the sequence, right? And there are a lot of vinyasa teachers that teach, I mean, they'll throw something in always like a pivotal pose somewhere, but mostly it's the same sequence over and over again. And people are attracted to that. I understand totally. It's something that's attractive, but we, we, we just reinforce something. We get attached to the way this is. And yes, we feel better for those hours or minutes or whatever after class, you know, but I, as we move into this world of AI, I just listen. I just listen sometimes to classes that are taught online, like on YouTube or on TikTok or whatever. And it's like an AI could be teaching this class. It's just a routine. You could program that and they can do it. And you don't need a person in, you don't need a teacher there. Mm-hmm. My classes, I'm always throwing different things in. Always, 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 always. And not because uh, I'm trying to do that necessarily as as just feels natural to me to add things and to, I'm changing. This is the practice is changing for me. This is how I'm presenting it now. This is how I understand it now. And um, I thank them because I said a lot of people don't like having to learn something new that's not in the like you know we all know how to do a sun salutation and we and that there's something gorgeous in that and wonderful i'm not putting that down Mm -hmm. but i'm just saying that we get into like this habit of it's yoga is only one way so then what happens when you have an injury what happens when you become 50 or 60 or 70 you know can you do the same practice that you were doing when you were 20 and 30 Mm -hmm. you know and people don't know what to do it's like oh i can't do yoga anymore because it's like, well, that's because you don't know the range of yoga. You don't know the what's, you know, totally possible within that container of yoga. Mm. You know, and and there's actually studies that show like one of the best um, what antidotes to hopefully to Alzheimer's, and which is of course a, a senior problem, is being able to learn different movement patterns from somebody else because our nervous system, we all move the way our nervous system understands movement and flow, right? Mm -hmm. And when we're forced to take on somebody else's choreography, Mm -hmm. your your mind has to really, your brain has to really function at a, at a super capacity to do that. So there's actually advantage in not just doing the same movement, pattern over and over again. And I kind of see benefit in both. I think sometimes when there's like a consistent pattern and people know what to expect, then you kind of forget about your body and can move into like deeper breath and deeper aspects. But I've also been on the flip side where I took a class at 
I don't even want to say, but anyway, I took a class and <laughs> oh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was very, very fast paced and it was very technical and it was very, um, very flowy, very active, very alpha, very creative, but to the point where I actually saw somebody dislocate their shoulder in the class. Um, and I was thinking, oh my God, for the people that don't know about alignment, um, this fast paced and this lack of awareness of movement, um, people are going to get hurt. And the breath was so incredibly fast. It was dangerous. And this is, this is a place that gets a lot of people. Um, of course. and, uh, I was kind of blown away by it. I was blown away by the pace, um, because it was double time and it was so technical that even me being pretty advanced and having a pretty advanced practice, um, had to be super mindful of my alignment so that I wouldn't get hurt. And that what was happening with my nervous system was, and I couldn't follow their breath because it was so fast that, um, it would have done the opposite of what I would hope yoga would do would be to kind of chill out my nervous system and relax it. And when I left, I was stressed out. Not only that, the class was also 108 degrees or something. And so I, and, and I don't think that's for everybody. For me, I might as well like lay down and just kind of die in the class because like I'm non-functional <laughs> at that right. at that level of heat. Um, but I, I, I guess let's kind of dig around and see if we can find some of the positive changes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know there are positive changes, and I would just add just add to the sweat phenomenon. It's like I've taken people's classes where it's so hot. Well, first of all, I've always been able to dehydrate really quickly because of my dosha and my constitution. So. So like, I don't need to rush that process because I'm aging like everybody else, you know, but it's like, if I'm so wet that I can't do a pose because I can't hold it because I'm slipping out of it because I'm so wet, I, I can do the pose, but I can't do it when I'm soaking wet. Mm -hmm. So where's the advantage of that? I think the positive things, um, like when the pandemic hit and I was like at home going like, oh, this is cool. I'll just do my practices and talk to my boyfriend and, you know, do what we do. And, and, and then people are like, uh, are you going to start teaching online or something? Like, I don't know. Should I? You know, it's like, I wasn't planning on it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm in people's rooms, I'm in people's homes, they're in my home and my students who have moved back to Europe or to the East coast or to Hawaii are taking class with me in my living room. That was crazy good. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and, and we did keep a community together, you know, people, same people were showing up and that was amazing. I never saw that coming in my wildest dreams. You know, I don't think anybody did really, but that's been a really positive thing. And I continue to, on my private sessions, which I do out of the studio, my studio here, um, I do half of them in person, but most people are still online. You know, it's easier. They're still at home. It's easier to do that. And I know them well enough and it works really well to, mm -hmm. you know, so that's been a really positive thing, how the internet kept us together and kept practice going and, you know, and, 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 and the consistency of community totally has been a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've been seeing in San Francisco in the Bay Area is that so several of the big conglomerate studios, Yoga Tree, Yoga Works, Yoga Crunch, whatever they are, you know, um, most of those all went under during the pandemic, right? They filed bankruptcy and they closed. So these all these studio spaces were just around. What's happened in the city is that more people have 
uh, gone in as private investors mm-hmm. or what like sole proprietors, you know, even as a team of people and take reclaim some of those studios. And so the studios that are being successful now are the ones that are owned by, it's like kind of like gone back to grassroots, right? So now that there's these uh, studios that are um, thriving right now, are sole proprietorships, I think is really a beautiful thing that mm-hmm. it's not the big, uh, you know, part of a, a hedge fund, which is what they were prior to closing down. So I think that's really positive. Um, yeah. What about you? What do you see that's positive that's happening currently? I think that access to yoga is really available for everybody. Anybody who wants to do it has the ability to do it from their home, from, you know, anywhere that they want. I think, um, sometimes there's those apps out there. Then people start with the apps and then hopefully, you know, they dive in with the teacher. Um, I, I feel like when COVID hit, the community crumbled here in Colorado and Denver. Um, I don't feel like there was a massive community. Like we talked about how in the older days there was a big, strong sense of community. Um, But I definitely felt the yoga community collapse and other things have popped up over here. Um, But I'm not really sure about the quality. It's really tricky now because you can go and pay $135 and become a yoga teacher um, and teach anywhere. And, you know, when I did my training, we had to live at the ashram for a month. <laughs> We'd wake up at, I don't know, five thirty in the morning, they'd be dinging a bell in the hall and we'd have to get up and all the way till nine thirty at night, we were doing a meditation and we lived there and we ate the food and we did all the Kriya practices. And, um, and so now I think, you know, anybody can become a teacher, but I also feel like the cream rises to the top and, and the ones that are good will probably get get the following and get the recognition um but i do miss i miss that sense of community i miss the collaboration with the teachers i'm not feeling it here in in colorado but i've also lived in i don't know eight states and i feel like over the years that's just kind of slipped from every place that i've lived and i and i miss that but i do like how yoga is accessible to everybody um and you know even on YouTube, you can get a plethora of good teachers, um, that offer free yoga. Oh, it's accessible to everybody where before yoga classes are really expensive, (laughs) um, and not everybody can afford it. Yeah. I think sometimes, sometimes people think of yoga as like one thing and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I would always say, try a million different teachers, and tried tons of different styles. And even within one style, try 10 teachers within that style because one of them might resonate with you. And so there's so many styles, there's so many teachers that I think it could be really overwhelming for somebody that's brand new to coming into yoga. Yeah. And who teaches beginning yoga classes anymore? You know, hardly anybody. You just kind of have to jump in and hope for the best. And it's so easy to get frustrated if you don't, if it, it doesn't align with you, because then, you know, then you think that's it, that's yoga, that didn't work for me, so I'm going to leave, you know. Mm-hmm. I think, that, you know, the other thing about, like, um, the, these these teacher trainings where people, you know, can in, in three months get certified, right? And um, I just talked to somebody recently who's having a challenging time with several studios, and they have made a point of not bringing on senior teachers because they couldn't afford 
mm-hmm. more senior teachers. So, you know, and, and that's the other side of it. Like teachers, have, until the pandemic, teachers were never paid what they deserve. It's funny to me how many people don't know a lot of the senior teachers because there's so many people out there doing things. Uh, not that that's the only way, but, <clears throat> but you know, there's that thing of having taught for a when you've taught something as long as you have, you know, you just have a finesse with it. You just have an understanding of it and it flows through you because it's part of you. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about yoga these days? Um, That you can learn it from a TikTok clip. Uh, because like, you know, I, I, I look through and of course I look through and Instagram and everything else. And, it's like people saying, oh, you know, if you have, if your back hurts, just do this. Or if you want, you know, you want to be uh, living longer, just do this. And so I really dislike seeing people uh, offer things that, that, that it can't deliver from doing this one thing. Do this one pose. It's not going to change your sciatica unless you really are working with somebody who really understands mm-hmm. that. And so it, and, and, and also that there are, their target audience are mostly 20 and 30 year olds. So I understand for, for that age group, that probably works and that may change your life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what happens when you're 40, what happens when you're, you know. Right. So. I think my frustration is, is too, that there's a lot of people that come to yoga and they think that there's one right way to do something. And there's a million right ways to do something or that they might not ever be able to get that back bend because of the way that their bones are stacked in their body, um, that, that they're, they might just physically never be able to get that. And that's okay. It doesn't even matter. It's not even that important. Or the person that's on Instagram, that's doing a back bend when they can touch their ankles and like do Cirque du Desolé stuff. Um, who knows what their body's going to be like in a couple of years, but they also might have other limitations. They're not showing their limitations. We all have limitations. There's nobody that's going to, mm-hmm. there's nobody that's going to get everything perfectly. And there's always going to be people that are better at things than us and, and that are going to have a harder time. And I think the danger comes into comparing ourselves to others. And so when we go on to some Instagram pages and we see all these beautiful people in these beautiful poses. That's really nothing about what yoga is about. It's, it's not even about the physical practice. It's not even about hitting those poses. Um, and it's so much deeper. And I wish that people would understand a little bit more about the deeper aspects of yoga. And for me, it was always the breath. The breath was always the, the key to, for me, and that's what I teach, but the, the breath is kind of the avenue to bring you into your body and to understand kind of what's going on. And um, I get a little frustrated with the with the focus on the physical practice because that's such a small piece of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And so what yeah. philosophies do you kind of weave into your classes? I know you bring in Ayurveda and a bunch of other mindfulness really you know um i will do i've been incorporating more qigong into a lot of my sequences and stuff in class and i will do anything or somatic work anything that brings you into a transformative state of consciousness and there are certain practices that do that instantly you know and it's like that's it you know, that's, that's the yoga right there. It doesn't have to look like a triangle pose or a backbend. 
it whatever is going to get you there that's the most important thing to me and you know there's a moment like at the end of class when everyone's in shavasana and 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 I and I'll, I'll just say okay okay so there's a place where you can feel that everyone in the room is kind of like flattened out into like this and to me that's the namaste that's the that is where we are one you know it's not contrived it is simply a, a, it's a tangible experience that we can have when practicing around others where you feel the whole room settles into this moment where the personality isn't promoting and pushing everything and to me so whatever i need to do to get to that that's what i'll do mm-hmm. and that's really kind of the practice that i follow so it's it's kind of like calling it out. It is mindfulness practice, but it's also saying like, okay, you know, because you can feel it. It's tangible. Mm-hmm. You can. You, so, can. you can feel it's like a pin can drop and you'll hear it. It's like in you're sitting in a, a long meditation retreat with a lot of people and you can, you know, the first several days, everyone's a little agitated. And there's a moment when the energy in the room just goes. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's when everybody's mind settles to a certain place. And that's, you know, that's the, the, the thing that we want to feel more of in our lives and in our breath and everything else, because that's what really matters. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're going, we are in the roller coaster, you know, we are on this ride right now, and it's just going to continue. And I think the importance of being able to step back from our negative bias, from the stories that are mind is telling us about everything and step back from that and just step into presence and so we can allow for whatever is coming up to come up and to be there not try to change it or whatever but just keep opening to it because that's our choice we either resist or we embrace Mm -hmm. you know we resist or we embrace and those are our choices um Mm -hmm. it's kind of like when you're in a yoga pose right and you and you're in a forward fold and you're like, oh, I'm going to touch my feet. And that's that resistance. And then if you can just drop into the breath for a second and just go into that moment of ease, then all of a sudden things kind of open up, even though you're not even trying. Mm-hmm. And as you've evolved as a teacher, what are some things that you used to do that you no longer do? Because <laughs> I think one of the things I miss actually is... I miss and I don't miss is those hands-on adjustments. Um, that was actually as a student, how I learned the most and how I grew the most. Um, and I have gone from doing huge adjustments to, you know, just moving somebody with my finger. Um, and we used to get adjustments in Savasana when somebody would just kind of hold our head and, um, and, and all of that has been pulled completely out of the classes. And I do miss that. And I do feel like those were valuable. I, I totally understand the reasoning why. Um, but as a student, and, and I've seen how, as a teacher, how the biggest growth sometimes come from like, somebody just kind of moving your hips a little bit and, and you're like, Oh my God, I didn't realize I was doing that for three years in this pose. Mm-hmm. And then now it's, it's so much easier. And so what are some things that, that you've taken out of your practice or changed or well, evolved? Well, all of those were out of my teaching, not so much out of my practice, but out of my teaching for sure. Um, uh, 
I've always used humor as part of it. So I, by, by being lighthearted about it, people will like, oh my God, did he really say that? You know, just kind of, so I've always been a loose cannon in that, in that way. And I've definitely been called out. That, and I definitely have my own feelings about, um, oh, I can, can I say cancel culture? You know, because it is part of, I mean, it, I live in Berkeley, like we're the hub of, part of that culture and just where everything is like needs to be limited for instance there is a pose called noose pose in yoga that's just it's a noose pose well the noose is used for cattle because it came out of india you know and i can't you know it's like oh somebody wrote me and they said oh so you know then let's do noose pose and they said, oh you really shouldn't use that word it's like mm-hmm. okay i get that mm-hmm. and this is where it's coming from you know so I still take chances. I still take a lot of risk. Uh, and I do say, is it okay if I put my hands here? Is it okay if I give you an adjustment? Mm-hmm. You know. And then the, people do have cards in class that they mm-hmm. can put out, which I go for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they can either say, yes, touch me, or no, don't touch me. But um, yeah, so kind of adjusting to that, you know. And, yeah. and also people are, because of the state of the world and the state of our minds, People get triggered so easily about everything. So I just, it's a given to me that if you're in front of a group of people, somebody's going to take issue with what you're saying or how you're saying it or how you're acting or how you're dressed or what you look like. Mm -hmm. There's no way to not be able to trigger people at this point in time, I think, you know, because we are just, we're all feeling this trembling that's going on and we all express it in our own way. Yeah, so. I think that's so true. Actually, you have to be, I mean, as a teacher in a public class, you have to be pretty careful about what you do, what you say, how you act. Um, but, um, but I think that there's a lot more people also walking around with trauma than ever before. And trauma, right. not even necessarily, I mean, there's a lot of trauma in the world, but just tr- like daily trauma, you know, right. getting accosted yes. on the road and getting honked at and getting screamed at. And it's just, uh, I think we're all a little more sensitive and a lot more hyper alert than we used to be. It's like we've got this these two realities going on, right? And I think that's part of it. Like I really feel the climate crisis is like here now. It's not something that's going to happen in five mm-hmm. years. It's here now. We're seeing it. We're all affected by this. So that's going like this threat is like coming up. And we know that it's coming up and we feel helpless about what to do about it and all this and that's what i'm saying that people are either conscious that they're feeling either grief or or just being triggered by the possibility of losing homes and land and Mm -hmm. food and everything else that that is just part of our consciousness right now and i feel it's important to talk about that without uh, triggering more trauma for people Mm -hmm. so that we can be with it and we can know that it's there and and how do we take care of ourselves knowing that how do we take care of our families how do we take care of things it gives us a way of seeing and perspective like what's really important here things can look really empty when when the the dynamics get so big just be over here and just keep trying to figure it out together and and practice so when people come to your classes, what do you hope their takeaway is? I hope they, that the takeaway is that they've actually had a tangible experience 
of of themselves that's not thought based that's not thinking mind that's and and that thinking mind is like usually just negative bias the whole time i mean most of it's what we're the thinking mind is mostly it's survival so it's like doing this the whole time trying to save us so that they have like so that you just experience like five minutes breath or two an hour of being in the space where all that's going on is the practice we're not on our phones, we're not scrolling, we're not on our to-do list, we're just simply here. And that is miraculous. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that, you know, they they feel something. Well, how do people connect with you if they want to find you, uh, David? Oh, through the website, you know, uh, moreyoga.com and... Uh, M-O-R... M O R because if you go to M O R E, it's a prop house. Uh, so it's just M O R, which is the first three letters of my last name, and it has uh, you know my weekly schedule. It also has some uh, uh, classes by demand that have been pre-recorded from other classes, and and the retreats that I'm doing in Mexico and and here, you know, are also listed there. So, oh, well, it was so fun right. to connect with you, David. I really appreciate you. your time. Take care. Real treat to see you. Big hug to the family too. Thank you, David. Okay, love. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkyyoga.com. N i c k y y y o g a dot com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.